You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. You're the reason this podcast is still going. If everyone who listened to this podcast gave just $1 a month, we could both turn this podcast into a full-time job and be certain that we could keep it going throughout the pandemic and keep bringing you more episodes. It would be a win for everyone. If you're not a member and you're able to donate, go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Members get ad-free episodes, extra episodes about fascinating topics, and hilarious, mostly drunken, conversations we've had with other podcasters and guests. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl and sign up today to join the fun. 27 virgins lustrated the city with a song. The rest of the year was peaceful. beautiful daughter. You watch her run and climb, skip stones along the beach. You watch her wrestle with her friends, learn to weave and cook. She's always been so full of energy, her beautiful dark hair glinting in the sun. You can't stop the feeling of dread and sorrow that blooms in you when you see her growing older, when you have to let out her tunics. It's not just the ordinary parent's sorrow to see a child grow old and leave your house. That part of things is normal. You've raised three children before her. You know how it goes. But this child, this beautiful girl, you know she is a girl. The gods know she is a girl. But she isn't formed like other girls. Not exactly. When she was born, instead of consulting with the doctors, you swaddled her immediately. Not even her father knows. You know what happens to children like yours. There was one in the next town over when you were young. The family hid the child for a time, but the priests caught wind and came to the village. They locked the baby in a coffin and threw him in the sea, and then nine nines of virgins sang songs in the town, and the god's ire was assuaged. You do not believe your daughter is a curse from the gods. How could such a bright, beautiful child be a curse or a portent of doom? Your child is the best of this world. She wins friends wherever she goes. Animals and small children love her. But if a neighbor, a friend, even her own cousins find out her secret, someone will tell the priests, and the priests won't care who she is. If there is a plague, a war, political unrest in some far-off capital, they will come for her. So you hide her. You've hidden her all these years. You've made her understand. Put the fear in her that she must never go naked. She knows there is something different about her, though she barely understands what it is, and she's never allowed to speak of it. She's beginning to ask questions, though. And soon, too soon, she will be of an age to be married. That terrifies you most, because when she's in her husband's house, she will no longer be able to hide, and you can no longer protect her. You can only delay so long and pray that the gods do something, anything, to protect her. Your child comes into your house while you're working at the loom. She is smiling and carrying flowers, and you want to take her in your arms and weep. She rolls her eyes and pushes you off, laughing and annoyed at the same time, and you notice something, a shadow on her face. You catch her chin in your hand and look closer. Facial hair, the early beginnings of a beard, 
Her father got his in early, and now so does your daughter. A cold dread grips your heart. You've prayed often for the gods to intervene, but not like this. Your daughter sees your ashen face. Her eyes have gone wide. She is asking you to explain what's wrong, but now your neighbor is at the door. You rise to your feet, your heart racing in your chest. A company of priests are here, your neighbor says, all the way from Rome. They are asking for you. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. So, in our series on gender rebels of the ancient world, we embarked on a search for queer women, explored why they were so destabilizing to the patriarchy, exactly how their existence threatened men's artificially constructed gender identity, and discovered why it was so necessary to the ancient Greeks and Romans to erase all mention of them in myth and history. Even as they highlighted same-sex relationships between men, as long as they came along with a troubling inequality in power, status, and age that preserved the dominant submissive binary that the Greeks and Romans were bound to. Then, we took a look at transgender men and women in the ancient world, and the way gender transitioning was seen as magical or even religious, the work of a god or goddess. We discovered the brilliant, colorful, and beautiful trans women who lived out and proud all over the Roman Empire and uncovered evidence of transgender men who tended to keep things a little more low-key. At least based on what we found. Yeah, at least based on the sources who have chronicled this. And now we're going to get into intersex people in the ancient world, what their lives were like, how they were seen by society, and what dangers they faced in ancient Greece and Rome because it was dangerous during certain times to be intersex, as it is now in some places. Intersex and otherwise gender-fluid people are featured in a few different places in ancient Greek mythology. In the story of Hermaphroditos, which we discussed in our transgender Aphrodite episode, who wound up an important part of Aphrodite's entourage, as well as stories such as Caenus and Caenius, a hero of the Argonauts, and Tiresias, who was transformed from a man to a woman and then back to a man, gaining the gift of prophecy. You might say they're intersex, you might say they're gender fluid, you might say they're transgender. It all kind of blurs together. Some ancient Greeks even worshipped transgender Aphrodite on Cyprus and celebrated her in rituals that emphasized gender fluidity. Plato even describes three sexes, male, female, and androgynous. While gender codes were very rigid in ancient classical Greece, their mythology and religious practice hints that intersex and gender fluid people were generally seen positively and even as having special powers, the powers of prophecy, perhaps. Details of the lives and existence of intersex people in ancient classical Athens prior to the rise of Rome are very difficult to find but it's possible that their myths point to an early acceptance of intersex people and even a special role for them in society. Yeah, and I'm not saying that's definitely how it was. I'm just saying that this is what I've uncovered so far. Jenny did the primary research for this episode and indeed for this Gender Rebel series, and it's been brilliant and enlightening. But a lot of this research is still very much ongoing. There's a lot of stuff that is being reinterpreted through different lenses now that we have a different framework. And that's all great. And that's not to say that this is the end all be all of things. It's just the knowledge we have at this moment. Yeah. Basically, when I tried to look into intersex people's lives in ancient classical Athens, what I was coming up with was generally mythology. Once Rome became ascendant, however, and ancient Roman culture began to influence Greek culture because they went in and colonized Greece, the picture for intersex people changed. By the 1st century BC, there are records of intersex people in Athens being captured and burned alive out of superstitious fear, a fear from Rome that had infected ancient Greece. Whenever somebody idealizes ancient Rome and talks about how it was a shining example of early democracy and a city on a hill, something, something, just they burn people alive, you guys, for being intersex. Just always answer them the way I do these days. For who? And then you can start the list of people for whom it was not okay. Including intersex people. Yeah! It was, in other words, dangerous to be intersex in the ancient world and sometimes in the modern world. And that was because of the specific kind of sex magic that the ancient Romans believed was associated with intersex people. A magic of frightening signs and portents. The ancient Romans were terrified of intersex people and it was intersex people, often children, who suffered for that. The ancient Romans were very superstitious. 
Anything could be a sign or a portent. Birds flying out of a forest in a certain way or flying into your house, that was a big one. I'm not that old. I grew up in the, in the 90s, and my grandparents, and even my mother still has that thing about birds. My grandfather was from Italy, and they, these are still traditions people believe. They believe if a bird flies into your house, that's like death coming in the door. The superstition is still real today. That's what I'm try- driving at. <laughs> and that superstition was there when Julius Caesar died. Like, you see all the signs importance portents listed at his death, and one of them involved birds flying into the Senate house or into Pompey's works or something, or maybe his house. I forget where the birds were, but there were definitely birds in a house where they shouldn't be. Among the signs of Julius Caesar's death, this is like a 2,000-year-old superstition, if not older. And it's still, you know, still very much around today. So that wasn't the only thing that could be a sign or important. For example, the shape of the liver of the calf that you just disemboweled, the way chickens clucked or pecked their food, whether or not the giant bull you just decapitated stuck out its tongue and licked its own gore. That one is from Plutarch. I mean, it's just such a vivid image, isn't it? It was what made me want to do episodes about this sort of signs importance situation, which I am going to get to, I swear to God. So one of the things that was considered a very strong portent was the birth of an intersex child. They were considered prodigies and not children with remarkable talents, as we might define it today, but signs of a disruption in the natural order. They were, in short, seen as curses from the gods, which is a horrible way to see a child. It's a horrible way to see anyone or anything. Not cool. So the ancient Romans liked people to believe that they didn't practice human sacrifice. That was something done by the barbarian cultures they conquered. And they propagated lurid tales of human sacrifice in the people they conquered, like the Carthaginians and the Celts. Although sometimes archaeology does uncover evidence that these sacrifices did happen. So the Romans were like, we absolutely do not do human sacrifices except like during Saturnalia when we've got those gladiatorial games and like everyone who dies in the games will then be like consecrated to Saturn but that's like not human sacrifice Jenny it's just entertainment with a byproduct of human sacrifice exactly we're not going there like explicitly to sacrifice people although that's totally why we're here and cheering but you know right so in case you didn't catch the sarcasm here the Romans absolutely did do human sacrifice One group of people at high risk of being sacrificed were intersex people, particularly in infancy and childhood. The ancient Romans saw the birth of intersex babies as a punishment from the gods, a curse. Not just of the child's family, but also of society as a whole. Thus, the birth of an intersex child was a state matter. As soon as word of such a birth reached Rome, priests would be dispatched to find and sacrifice the child usually by drowning, but sometimes being burned alive because this is awful. This is going to be a dark one, you guys, in case you haven't picked up on that. (laughs) In case you haven't seen where where this series is going. (laughs) Why do you guys listen to us? Anyway, let's move on. Let's try to get through this. So we told a story from Fleagon of Tralies' Book of Marvels in our last Halloween episode with Liv called Three Ghost Stories from Ancient Greece. That was specifically about an intersex child. In Liv's story, an intersex child was taken outside the city limits by a superstitious mob that was planning to burn the child. Thankfully, the child wasn't burnt to death, but unfortunately, the child wound up being eaten by the ghost of their dad. It was not a happy ending. I mean, it's just one awful thing to another. The story was fictional, but there are plenty in the historical record that weren't. Intersex children were especially at risk of being rounded up and sacrificed during periods of community crisis and societal upheaval, plagues, natural disasters, unrest, and war. Here's another story from the Second Punic War from 218 to 201 BC. This is around the time period. During this time, Hannibal had brought his elephants over the Alps to invade Italy, and the Romans were in an absolute panic over this. This is from Livy's History of Rome. Quote, Before the consuls set out for war, they offered public sacrifices for nine days, since it rained stones in Vai. Once that bad omen occurred, others were soon announced. Lightning struck the temple of Jupiter in Minturnae, as well as the sacred grove of Marcia and both the city walls and gate of Atella. At Minturnae, they added another terrifying omen. A river of blood flowed into their city gate. At Capua, a wolf entered the city at night and mauled a guardsman. The consuls expiated these bad omens with more sacrifices, 
and another public day of prayer was decreed by the head priests. Another nine days of public sacrifices were ordered when it seemed to rain stones in Armelustrum. As soon as the public's minds were put to ease by the expiation, they were terrified yet again by the announcement that in Fruzio, that there was a child, born the size of a four-year-old. But the child's size wasn't the miraculous part, but rather the similarity to what had happened in Sinuessa two years prior. The child was indistinguishably male or female. The religious specialists summoned from Etruria declared that the omen was foul and wretched. They declared that the child must be banished from Roman territory, drowned in the sea, far from sight of land. The child was locked in a coffin and thrown into the sea. So, one thing to note here is that it says that the child in question was born the size of a four-year-old, which makes me wonder, and I've seen other historians speculate about this too, about this passage, if they had actually been born four years ago. This was a four-year-old child, and the parents successfully hid the child for a time. This may have been something parents sometimes did when they had intersex children. I don't think it's May. I think this is something parents did. This is your child. So there were other children like this, lots of them. Julius Obsequens, a Roman writer living in the 4th or 5th centuries AD, recorded a history of signs importance that occurred in the Roman Empire. One of the things he recorded was a history of intersex children being sacrificed. Here is a grim account. And remember, he's far in the future recording a lot of stuff that happened in the BCs. So this list that Jenny's put together is a combination of the Topos text and the LGBT meets SPQR, a classics blog focused on queer representation in the classics. So, 186 BC. In Umbria, a nearly 12-year-old intersex child was found and was executed by order of the priests. 142 BC. Since there was a famine and pestilence, a supplication was conducted by the Decemviri. At Luna, an intersex child was born and on the orders of the Hero species was carried down to the sea. 133 BC. In the city limits of Ferentino, an intersex child was born and thrown into a river. 122 BC. An intersex child was born in downtown Avizano and was thrown into the sea. 119 BC, an eight-year-old intersex child was found in the Roman field and thrown in the sea. Three nines of virgins sang in the city. Three nines of virgins is 18 virgins. I think it's 27 virgins. Three nines, yeah. So three nines of virgins is 27 virgins sang in the town center in the city. It was a religious ritual. I don't know what the um, ceremony is, but a lot of the time, a large number of virgins, usually 27, it's like this ritual number of virgins singing in the city was part of this throwing children in the sea. Well, and also this thing of saying like three nines, like a lot of times, like the number three, the number nine, these are different numbers that repeat again later on in other religions like Christianity. Because of when this is being written, I just wanted to pull that out. 117 BC. At Rome and nearby, lightning struck many buildings. At Praeneste, it rained milk. The spears of Mars in the Regia moved. At Privernum, the earth in an area of seven Iugura collapsed into a cave. At Saturnia, an intersex child, ten years old, was discovered and drowned in the sea. Twenty-seven virgins lustrated the city with a song. The rest of the year was peaceful. 98 BC, another intersex child thrown into the sea. 97 BC, a supplication was held in the city because an intersex child had been found and thrown into the sea. 95 BC, an intersex child was born in Umbrino and thrown into the sea. So this list is just brutal. It's just awful. Yeah. What's happening here is that the priests were going out and finding these intersex kids, either when they were born or after they've grown into childhood, and executing them during unstable times. These kids were scapegoats for all kinds of things happening. War, plague, political instability, famine, and more. And you definitely see parents hiding the child for a time. Like, some of these kids got to the age of 10 or 12 before this happened. And that age is super important because that's the age at which you're entering puberty or just about to enter puberty. So it's here, under the shadow of plague and war and the threat of death by sacrifice, that we return to the story of Iphis and Ianthe. 
The story of Iphis and Ianthe is one that changes in the telling, depending on the point of view. First, we explored this story from the lens of queer women, then from the lens of trans men. Today, let's take a look at the story again and see what it can tell us about intersex kids and their families in the ancient world. We travel back to the beginning. A couple lives on Crete, Telethusa and Ligdis. Telethusa is pregnant, and Ligdis is adamant that it not be a girl. He tells his wife, in no uncertain terms, that if the child is a girl, she must abandon it. Telethusa does not want to abandon her child. But this is ancient Greece, and she cannot go against her husband. So she prays in secret until Isis comes to her. Isis, the goddess of magic, (laughs) the goddess of, like, all good things, says, disobey your husband. I, Isis, will make sure that things turn out just fine. And that's what Telethusa does. She gives birth to a child, and that child does indeed turn out to be a girl. Luckily, Ligdis is out of the house when the child is born. So Telethusa wraps it up tight, swaddles the child, quickly before anyone else can see, and then, when her husband comes home, she proudly shows him his new baby boy. Ligdis is overjoyed. He names the child Iphis, a gender-neutral name, and together the two raise Iphis as a boy. In our Queer Women episode, we used she-her pronouns for Iphis. In our episode on trans people, we used he-him pronouns. This time, we're using they-them pronouns because in this telling, Iphis is intersex. When Iphis is old enough, they're engaged to be married to Ianthe, their childhood sweetheart. Iphis's secret has been kept for all their life, and Ianthe believes she is marrying a cisgender man with a penis. Iphis is having a full-on panic, very quietly, under wraps, not telling anybody because they've learned to keep it a secret their whole life. Except maybe their mom. Their mom knows. Their mom knows, but their dad doesn't know. Ianthe expects a man with a penis, and Iphis doesn't have a penis. What is going to happen on their wedding night? The story ends happily. Iphis prays for a penis, and so does Telethusa, Iphis's mom. And then, just before the wedding night, the gods, Isis included, they come and they grant that penis. And in this story, it's a happy ending. Ovid doesn't say that Iphis is intersex. So what does this story tell us about intersex people? Well, for one thing, it's about the hiding. Imagine having a child that nobody could see naked, not ever. It's an enormous secret to keep, not just when the child is younger, but also when they're older. In ancient Greece, people were naked together a lot. Bathing, exercising, worshipping their gods, they just took it all off. They would have had to not participate in a lot of things that would have been normal at the time. And without arousing suspicion. Exactly. And one of the things about Iphis and Ianthe is, like, their parents were just normal, average, humble, like, merchants, farmers, people. Like, they weren't kings and queens. So this is, like, very much a story of an ordinary couple and their child. In the ancient world, as oftentimes today, the richer you are, the more privacy you have. So people who were not rich did not have a lot of privacy in their day-to-day lives. And, you know, I'm just thinking about things like public baths, like where did they bathe? In a river. So we talked in previous episodes about how Iphis's mom would have had to have orchestrated a very extensive years-long cover-up to make sure nobody realized that Iphis had biologically female body parts. For parents with intersex kids, this would have been the reality, and the stakes would have been very, very high. Intersex parents had to worry about this all the time in ancient Rome and in ancient Greece when Greece was colonized by Rome. They had to keep their children under wraps, literally, because if anyone found out that this child's biological sex was not what everybody expected it to be, the priests in Rome might get wind of it. And if they did, especially if there was famine somewhere or plague or war, if there was a public to assuage, that child would be in very real danger. So that's one thing the story of Ivis and Ianthe tells us about the lives of intersex children and their families in ancient Greece and Rome, especially ancient Greece under Roman influence. The hiding, the secrecy, the terror, the never allowing the child to be seen naked, not ever, on pain of very dire consequences, and all of this without arousing any suspicion. Some parents pulled this off for a time. Notice that in the list we read earlier, the oldest children were 10 or 12, just before puberty. And that's not a coincidence, because puberty would have been a very dangerous time for intersex children. First, because everyone got married back then, usually around puberty. I mean, if you were a girl. 
you couldn't just opt out of getting married without arousing a lot of suspicion. And if a child's intersex identity was kept hidden their whole life until now, the marriage could bring everything out in the open. A frightened child and their equally frightened parents might pray hard for the genitals everyone expected them to have. And sometimes the gods may have granted those prayers in a sense. Because there's another aspect of this story that centers on the transformations that happened, usually around the time of marriage. Viewed one way, they're stories of transitioning for trans men. Viewed another, they tell us about the experience of intersex kids who managed to make it to puberty. Number one, once you get married, you can't just not be naked in your husband's house or your wife's. But these are a lot of the time these stories are female to male transitioning stories. So you can't just be not naked in your spouse's home and your parents can't protect you anymore because you're not in their house and under their purview anymore. And there are lots of different ways to be intersex. It's not just one health condition. And with some intersex conditions, symptoms don't manifest until puberty. And it may be no coincidence that these transitioning stories happen around marriage because that's just when some intersex kids saw their bodies changing in ways that others did not expect. Diodorus Siculus wrote about this. He was a Roman writer who lived from around 90 to 30 BC. He's one of the main chroniclers for the Spartacus Wars. He also wrote about intersex people in more detail than anyone who came before him. He had two accounts of intersex people in the ancient world who were lucky enough to survive to adulthood, and we'll look at both of them in detail. The first is Diophantus of Abai. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Diophantus was originally born Herias and assigned female at birth. She was born in Abai, a city in the Seleucid Empire at the time. She was the daughter of a man also called Diophantus. We don't know much about her childhood. What we know is that when she was old enough, her father gave her in marriage to a man named Semiades, who I'm going to call Sam. The two lived together for about a year. At some point, Sam left town on a long journey, and that's when Arias fell sick. A tumor grew on her lower abdomen, and she was gripped by fever. Doctors thought something was up with her uterus and applied treatment, but nothing seemed to help. But finally, after about a week, her tumor burst through the skin, and suddenly, projecting from the groinal area, was a penis and testicles. When this happened, her physicians were not there. Only her mom and two trusted maidservants were present. Herias was asleep when it happened, and while she was sleeping, they wrapped up the area, hiding her genitals even from her. Their explanation among themselves was that Herias must have had quote-unquote homosexual sex with her husband. There isn't an explanation of that in Diodorus, but we are extrapolating that maybe they mean anal sex. When Herias woke up, nobody said anything about it. A pall of silence fell over the event. To me, it sounds like maybe... Depending on the age of Sam, maybe like the kind of sex he was used to was pederastic sex, and that's the kind of sex they had. 
And also, Harias would have been really young because if Harias was married to Sam and a year after these symptoms occurred and she happened to be a kind of intersex where the symptoms appear at puberty, she would have been married to him a year prior to puberty. She would have been really, really young. So, I mean, is it possible that he was repeating a pederastic pattern? I mean, I can't really say for sure. I don't think Diodorus says how old he was. But is it possible yeah. I'm also thinking, like, depending on how old Sam was, that would have been normal sex for him, depending on his relationship, right? What I'm saying is, like, it's not anything against anal sex. What, I, what it is against is a pederastic relationship where you've groomed a young boy. It might not have been anal sex. We talked about this in our um, Hadrian and Antinous episode, which is on our Patreon. And that's where we go into real detail about pederasty. It was not always anal sex that people had. It was intercural sex, which was between the thighs. So that might have been what they're talking about here as well. I'm extrapolating that it would have been anal sex because of the additional shame attached. This is all extremely disturbing and gross. That's where this led to, unfortunately. So anyway, Horaeus continued to wear women's clothes and identify as female. But when her husband, Sam, returned from his trip, she couldn't even stand to be in the same room as him. She was deeply ashamed over how her body had changed and what had happened to her. And so she remained silent about it and refused to have sex. And Sam did not react as an understanding and kind husband would. Instead, he got angry. Why are you avoiding me? What the hell is going on? He wanted answers. And Harias fled to her father's house. And her father, Diophantus, sheltered her. Sam went to Diophantus's house multiple times, demanding the return of his wife. And Diophantus refused. Nobody would tell him why. Finally, Sam was so upset, he just wanted these answers, that he brought a lawsuit, trying to persuade the judges to order his wife to return to his house. Diophantus argued that Harias was his daughter, and she would stay in his house if he said so. This was, of course, extremely traumatic for Harias, who had to watch all the judges fall into debate about who exactly owned her, her husband or her father. Finally, the judges arrived at the conclusion that the husband had to win out and that it was a wife's duty to attend upon her husband. Ugh. Harias, who wanted to stay with her dad, felt she had no choice but to stand up in court lift her skirts, and show everyone what had happened. It's kind of a reverse Phryne here. Yeah. Here's how Diodorus tells it. Quote, Screwing up her courage, she unloosed the dress that disguised her, displayed her masculinity to them all, and burst out in bitter protest that anyone should require a man to cohabit with a man. So, after this, the judges agreed with her and did not make her return to her husband's house. She then went on to live as a man, to wear men's clothes, and to take the name of her father, his father, Diophantus. And now we're switching to he, him pronouns. Diophantus's genitalia was not perfectly conventionally male, and doctors performed surgery on him to make them conform to what people expect. And here's what Diodorus said on that. And I kind of questioned whether I should include this detail when I was writing this episode, because I was kind of like, well, maybe intersex people don't want to hear about the details of genitalia which is a totally fair feeling to have, but I felt like it was important to include because I think that it shows a really important facet of what it was like to be intersex at this time and, like, what people had to go through to, like, live a life. Yeah, so it's traumatic, and if you don't want to listen, skip ahead a couple seconds, but it is important that we include it so that we can all understand what this would have been like. So I'm going to give you guys this quote. Again, if you don't want to hear about genitalia, just skip ahead a few seconds. Quote, the physicians, on being shown the evidence, concluded that her male organ had been concealed in an egg-shaped portion of the female organ, and that since a membrane had abnormally encased the organ, an aperture had formed through which excretions were discharged. In consequence, they found it necessary to scarify the perforated area and induce cicatrization. Having thus brought the male organ into decent shape, they gained credit for applying such treatments as the case allowed. So I have absolutely no idea how this lines up to any kind of actual intersex condition. I don't know what this means medically at all. I don't know if this is like a real thing that happens to people physically. But I think what's important to point out here is that this surgery involves scarification. 
cicatrization is a form of scarification, usually done as a type of decorative body modification, where damage is caused to create scars. And I think that it's important to point this out because, I mean, this must have been horrifically painful. Like, people didn't have anesthesia. And now Diophantus has to live with altered genitalia that possibly caused chronic pain. First off, like, it's absolutely awful that this person's genitalia was scarred as a way to sort of, like, conform them to their society. We don't know that this was medical. We just know that they believed this was medical. I get the sense, like, the reason these surgeries were done wasn't so much to, like, make the genitalia function better as to make it conform to societal expectations. That's what I'm saying. Like, we don't know that the genitalia wasn't functioning perfectly well, and this surgery that was done to make it conform to the societal expectations didn't cause excruciating pain and just make this person's life worse. We don't know, but I that's what I hear in this. A doctor might hear something different in it. I don't know. And, and to be honest, the source doesn't really tell us that information. So after his surgery, Diophantus joined the King's Cavalry and became a loyal officer. Meanwhile, his former husband, Sam, never stopped loving his former wife. Diodorus tells us that he was so overcome with shame about what happened that he changed his will to make Diophantus his heir, and then he took his own life. I mean, I have so many thoughts about that. What are your thoughts? <laughs> well, I mean, there's the obvious romanticism of this, which is like, maybe this guy just really loved Diophantus, and all he wanted to do was be with him? Like, I don't know, maybe there was a way if we if the courts weren't involved that this could have been sorted out in a nicer way. Like, Diophantus could have gone back if he wanted. I think it's really interesting that Diophantus joined the King's Cavalry and became, I mean, it seems to me, I'm not 100% sure if this is accurate. I don't know how the army worked in the Seleucid Empire. <laughs> maybe I'll know more about that in future episodes. But like, it seems to me that Diophantus, by virtue of being now accepted as male in society, he could choose his own destiny in a way that he couldn't before. That is interesting to me. Like, there's something in these stories about misogyny and how women's lives are kind of limited in the ancient world, too, and about how these transformations can, if the person is lucky enough to survive, give them more choices if they're accepted as men. Yeah, if they're accepted and if they choose to live their life that way, right? Like, as a man, they don't have to stay with their husband. People would accept if they left, and that's not true if they had remained a woman. No. There's a second story of an intersex person that comes to us via Diodorus Siculus. It happens 30 years after Diophantus in the city of Epidaurus in ancient Greece. It's the story of Callo or Callon, the Epidorian. Callo was assigned female at birth. Before marriage, she was a priestess of Demeter. Diodorus tells us that she was born without a vagina, only a perforation through which she excreted vaginal fluids. When she grew up, she married a man, but she couldn't have vaginal sex with him because of her physiology. Diodorus says that she was obliged to submit to unnatural embraces, which may have meant anal sex here. It may have meant other things. It may have meant intercural sex. Like, I think there was more shame associated with anal sex, which is why I'm assuming here, but it doesn't say. So two years after her marriage, a tumor occurred in Callow's groin area, and it caused great pain. When all other physicians didn't want to treat it because they did not know what was happening, a certain apothecary, quote-unquote, words of Diodorus, stepped in and lanced the tumor upon which a man's genitals popped out. The penis did not have a urethra, so surgery was needed. And again, this is where we're going to talk about genitalia. If you don't want to hear about that, just skip ahead a little bit. Diodorus describes how, while all the other doctors were standing around in amazement, this one very knowledgeable apothecary stepped in to surgically create a passage for urine to pass through and recrafting the male genitals to look more conventional, again through scarification. Then he demanded he get paid double because he, quote, received a female invalid and made her into a healthy young man. I mean, do you have some thoughts about this, Jenny? I have some thoughts about this. So one thing I've read some scholars discuss about this case is that the penis in this case might have been an enlarged clitoris. In which case, it's really horrible to think of surgeons creating a urethra in an enlarged clitoris, which, again, just brings me back to the whole excruciating surgery and then lifelong chronic pain of it all, you know? 
for intersex people who survived to be old enough, this must have been part of that experience. I don't know if it was an enlarged clitoris, but that is what some people have said. And then he wanted to be paid double. <laughs> yeah, he's like, well, I took something worthless, a woman, and made it into a healthy young man. Huzzah, pay me more. Huzzah. I was peeing just fine before. Now I have chronic pain and struggling to have pleasure because you've put a hole in my clit. Thank you. Horrible. So from then on, Calla laid aside her loom and all other implements of work-coated female and started dressing and identifying as a man changing her name to Callon. Diodorus tells us that it was believed at the time that in his function as a priestess of Demeter, Callon, quote, witnessed things not meant to be seen by men, and thus he was punished for impiety by the gods. So are they saying that Callon was turned intersex because when they were a woman, they saw things they shouldn't have seen because they were really a guy. I think what he's saying, and I could be wrong on this, but my take is that Callan was never a woman. And so she was a priestess of Demeter, but was not a woman and saw things that she should not have seen. So these are some examples of intersex stories from the ancient world. Seen from one lens, which we talked about in the last episode, they could qualify as transitioning stories for transgender men. And they do have a lot in common with those stories. In both, the transition goes from female to male, not the other way around. And it happens right around puberty. But what's interesting about these two stories is that neither one has a big supernatural element. There's no God bestowing genitals on someone. In fact, things are described in clinical detail for the ancient world. It's basically medical. In addition, neither person seems to want this transformation. They don't seem to identify as male until their genitals change. For that reason specifically, I thought these stories were better categorized as on the intersex end of the spectrum than on the transgender end, which is why I included them here. I think that's the big thing, right? They, they don't ask or pray for that. So are these accurate descriptions of real intersex people in the ancient world, both with conditions that did not manifest until puberty? It's hard to say. I don't know. They may have been based on real accounts, but, you know, I can't say medically if this tracks on a real condition people might have had. I don't know. But also it's the ancient world. Like, they don't know what they're talking about half the time. <laughs> exactly. Like, the way that they describe it, even if it was a real thing, might not have been in a way that we could understand and track to something that is an actual condition. Both Calon and Diophantus, if they really existed, were lucky to survive. Because intersex people weren't just in danger when they were children. Diodorus Siculus tells us of others. Here's what he said happened to an intersex person who was not so lucky as these two. Quote, at the outset of the Marsian War, at any rate, this would have been the social wars from 91 to 87 BC, there was, so it is reported, an Italian living not far from Rome who had married an intersex person similar to those described above. He laid information before the Senate, which, in an excess of superstitious terror and in obedience to the Etruscan diviners, ordered the creature to be burned alive. Ugh, he calls a person the creature. It's terrible. I know. This is the rest of the quote. Still dark. Thus did one whose nature was like ours and who was not, in reality, a monster, meet an unsuitable end through misunderstanding of his malady. Shortly afterwards, there was another such case in Athens. And again, through misunderstanding of the affliction, the person was burned alive. There's a lot to unpack with this one. There's a lot, yeah. So this is the story of a person who was intersex. I believe somebody who was originally identified as female. Somehow this man who had an intersex spouse wound up before the courts and um, in an excess of superstitious terror. And because some Etruscan diviners said so... His spouse was unfortunately ordered to be burned alive, like not allowed to live, not given horrific, excruciating scarification surgery, but burned alive. Can we stop for a minute with the, the Etruscan diviners? Because what I find super interesting about this is you can see sort of the Roman propaganda machine because the Romans don't burn people alive. They don't do that. But the Etruscan diviners, the ancient Italians, the people who go back even further, they burn people alive. And if they say we have to burn this poor person alive, then that's what they're going to do. But the Romans didn't order it. They're kind of scapegoating the Etruscans in a way. 
But that's also really interesting because a lot of those ancient superstitions, like the birds flying into the house and stuff, I haven't done a deep dive on this yet, but it is my understanding that a lot of that comes from more ancient Etruscan superstitions. Well, and also during the social wars where all the different peoples of the Italian peninsula were fighting with each other and Marius and Zella. It was during the social wars, which was a time of great social upheaval. So in that time of social insecurity and upheaval, they would have chosen probably to sacrifice these people rather than just letting them live. But besides that, what I'm saying is during this particular point in time, the Italian peninsula was very tribal. It was broken down into different communities who believed different things. Like the entire more codified religion of Rome isn't here yet. You still have the Etruscans and all the different places believed slightly different things. Yeah, but what what is unifying is everyone was extremely superstitious. Yeah, absolutely. So there's something else to unpack here. Notice how Diodorus Siculus condemns the superstitious terror that led people to harm intersex people. He talks about how this person in this story was sacrificed through misunderstanding of the malady. He obviously refers to this person as a creature, which is really fucked up. But for his time, he was better than before. Yeah, which is something. It's not much. It's not much. And we don't want to give him... Too much credit for a passage in which he refers to a person as a creature. Like, that's extremely fucked up. But what I do want to point out is that Diodorus Siculus lived from, like, what? Right around the turn of the millennium. And this was a time period when attitudes towards intersex people were changing a bit. And and I'm not saying it's better, necessarily. It's not better. We're going to explain it a little more in a minute. I would say it is really important to remember this turn of the millennium here, this BC to 80, a lot of stuff was happening. You were watching Rome start to move away from being a republic and into an empire. You had Spartacus revolting. You had three other servile wars, the rise of the Roman power across the Mediterranean. Everything was shifting. Well, social attitudes were changing in certain ways as well. And intersex people were caught up in that. Pliny says that by his time, which was around the first century AD, and like I said, this isn't representing necessarily an improvement, but just a shift. Intersex people were no longer immediately sacrificed when born. Okay, that's good. Well, thank God. Yeah. But wait. (laughs) Oh, hang on. It's still it's still the ancient world. Still super dark. Instead, they were viewed with public fascination, and there was even a private slave market for enslaved intersex people, which obviously isn't much better than the older status quo. Instead of being immediately sacrificed at birth or whenever the priest could find them, they were being fetishized and sexually commodified. So around this time, there was an intersex person who survived into adulthood, and he went on to have a very prominent career as a philosopher. He lived during the early imperial period from AD to 160 AD, during the reign of Hadrian. His name was Favorinus of Arlate. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Favorinus was described as identifying as male. Which seems likely to us because as a philosopher and a public person, he could get more done in ancient Rome by identifying as male. Realistically, like Diophantus taught us that. Yeah. 
When I think about sort of like philosophers and mathematicians who are women and stuff like that, I think of Hypatia and um, Aspasia. We know of them, but we know of them not as prominently as the male philosophers like Plato or Socrates. In the ancient world, it just might be better from a practical perspective to identify as male. You just have more freedom. Obviously, a lot of people don't have that a choice. I would say that what we know is that people wrote about him as if he was male. He's described as male. But he was also described by people who knew him as having a very feminine appearance and a high-pitched voice. Modern scholars have suggested that he may have had Riefenstein syndrome or partial androgen insensitivity syndrome which is a condition where cells don't respond as well to androgen, which is a hormone that gives rise to a lot of male sex traits. We don't know that for sure. That's just something that people have suggested. Someone who knew him, a rival philosopher named Polemon of Lydokea, described him this way. And this is not a flattering description. These two were not friends at all. I'm going to give you this quote, and I'm going to talk about why it's actually pretty attractive. (laughs) Quote, when his eyes are open, this is um, Polemon, who is Favorinus's sworn enemy. This is his description of Favorinus. Quote, when his eyes are open, with a shimmer like marble and a sharp gaze, they indicate little modesty. He was lustful and dissolute beyond all measure, for his eyes were those of the worst type of man. He had a puffy forehead, soft cheeks, a wide mouth, a long, thin neck, thick legs, and fleshy feet. He's, like, really examining his body quite closely. He really is. Also, what do you have against flat feet? Like, not everyone can have perfect arches, man. I think Polemon of Lydokea thinks the lady doth protest too much, is all I'm saying. I'm not disagreeing. I'm just gonna go on with this description of favoriness from Polemon, who obviously had a giant hate boner for him. Quote, His voice was just like a woman's, and all the rest of his limbs and extremities were soft. And he did not walk upright, but with slack joints and limbs. He took great care of his person by nourishing his thick hair and by rubbing medicaments into his body. In short, using anything to arouse desire for sex and coitus. Okay, so before we even go anymore, let's just be very, very honest. Polemon was bald. (laughs) Like, super bald. (laughs) Super jealous. So, to continue with this description, um, favoriness, according to Polemon, quote, had a voice like a woman's and thin lips. In the whole human race, I never saw anything like him or his eyes. Oh, swoon. I think there's a lot going on here. Polemon is very sweaty while he's writing this down. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think he's written some real fan fiction. You can see something super flattering under this, right? Favorinus was clearly a very attractive individual. He had a long, graceful neck. Very attractive. He was androgynous, which many people find very sexy. He had a great head of hair, which Polemon was extremely jealous of. And he had very arresting eyes, like stop you in your tracks in the middle of the street eyes. Holy crap. Yeah, he had some real bedroom eyes. They were real dark and tense all the time. Super intense. And he took really good care of himself. These are all very attractive traits. And... This was probably the case because Favorinus had, shall we say, a reputation. He got it on. Both his friends and enemies seemed to agree that he could get it. According to Philostratos of Athens, one time he was hauled into court for sleeping with the wife of a consul. I feel like according to Philostratos of Athens, this guy fucks. Can't stop, won't stop. (laughs) He fucks. Favorinus was a Gaul. He was born in Aralate, or modern-day Arl. It's a city in France that I don't know how to pronounce properly. I apologize. So we don't know much about Favorinus's early life or his family, but he was probably from a wealthy and influential family because he received an excellent education, starting in southern Gaul, then moving to Rome. In his youth, he traveled through Greece, Italy, and the eastern provinces. He had his own little grand tour. Later in his life, Favorinus rose to the pinnacle of philosophy and influence both in Athens and Rome. He was known as an outstanding orator. His high-pitched voice did not hold him back. It was like, it was his calling card. He was friends with and sometimes taught noted personalities of his time, including Plutarch, oh, he of the flying ointment, Demetrius the Cynic, the prominent orator and philosopher, Herodes Atticus, to whom he left his extensive library in Rome after his death. And, of course, the Emperor Hadrian. So before we go on to tell you about Favorinus's relationship with Hadrian, we just want to pause and explore a big question that's hanging over this story. 
How exactly was it that Favorinus could just have this life? Like, intersex people a couple generations ago were getting burned alive and thrown into rivers at the age of 12. 27 virgins singing. Yeah, exactly. How is it that Favorinus just got to do this? There are some reasons, and it's, at least in my opinion, this a lot of this is not necessarily stuff that I've seen other historians talk about, but it is my theory, and it's worth digging into this a little bit more carefully. Yeah, and just, just to say, they're not good. <laughs> just the reasons. They're not necessarily good. I mean, the fact that Favorinus got to have this amazing life doesn't mean that things were better for intersex people as a whole. It's a different fresh hell, that's all. So Favorinus lived from around 80 to 160 AD or thereabouts. That's just roughly a century after Diodorus Siculus was writing about intersex people being burned alive. The last child thrown into the sea in that list of sacrificed intersex children that we read you happened in 95 BC, so roughly 200 years prior to Favorinus. That's not that long in, in the scope of things. True, a lot can change in a couple of centuries, and it's clear that the picture was changing. But how did it change so drastically in just a century or two that Favorinus could have this life as a prominent philosopher at the highest level in Hadrian's court, given what we know about how intersex people were treated before? This is a complicated question, and the answer isn't simple. We think Favorinus got lucky in a lot of ways, although, of course, he did still experience a lot of discrimination in his lifetime. Like, that goes without saying. But he was probably from a wealthy family, for one thing, no doubt one with a lot of influences and resources to protect him. But that's not the only factor. The other clue is in that quote from Pliny, which describes how the situation was changing for intersex people, even in his time. And Pliny lived from 24 to 79 AD, so just before Favorinus's time. Pliny the Elder said that intersex people were becoming less feared as bad omens in Roman culture and more fetishized and sexually commodified. There was even a special slave market for enslaved people who were intersex. So this coincides with another type of enslaved people who were fetishized and commodified around this time, and those people were eunuchs. So this is an extremely complex topic. I don't want to do too much of a deep dive on it here because I've actually written two episodes on it which are coming up next. But the short version for the purposes of this episode is, starting around the turn of the millennium, it had begun to be kind of a horrible fad in ancient Rome, this is horrible, I'm sorry, to castrate prepubescent boys in slavery and sell them as sex slaves to very wealthy buyers. A lot of emperors had castrated boy eunuchs as sex slaves, including Augustus. Augustus had one. There's some parallels here with intersex people. This is real dark. I'm sorry. There's genital mutilation involved with both groups, as we've discussed. There's sexual fetishization with both groups. There's slavery in a special expensive slave market for wealthy buyers with both groups. Like, favoriness was coming up around the time that these boy eunuchs were also in demand, and they had been in demand for more than a century. Like, you know, around the time of Augustus is the first one that I've seen mention of that an emperor had. I mean, he was the first emperor, so that's probably why. Not to say that this didn't happen earlier, because I'm sure it did. Oh, no. And not to say that Tiberius also didn't happen. <laughs> oh, no. Tiberius was after Augustus, and he absolutely did. I mean, just listen to our series on the ancient world Stark family. I think it's in, like, I forget if it's in the second or third one, but it's... Second episode. Yeah. So these enslaved boys faced a lot of dangers in imperial courts. They had to do a lot of emotional labor to survive, especially in volatile courts like those of Diocletian and Nero. And we're going to talk about Nero in quite some detail in our next episode, so we're not getting into it now. So some of these enslaved boys gained the emperor's ear and gained power and influence. And it's out of this tradition that the tradition of eunuchs in positions of administrative power arose in ancient Rome. By Hadrian's time, Eunuchs were finding their place at court, close to the seat of power. They were becoming common and even influential as part of the households of wealthy men. This didn't just happen in the emperor's household. It also happened in the households of other wealthy men who could afford it. It is unfortunately treating people like accessories. And Favorinus got lucky in another way, aside from his family's wealth, in that his type of intersex condition was seen by people of his time not necessarily as intersex, but as a sort of eunuchhood. 
Number one, he was not ever enslaved. He was not ever a sex slave that I know in his story. So like, that's not part of it. I would never say someone who had that experience was privileged in any way. But like, he was lucky in that eunuchs were becoming common at court and he read as a eunuch. And obviously this is horribly discriminatory in all kinds of ways. And if he was here, he would tell us that he actually is really fucked up. And I'm sure he would. But like, the alternative I'm thinking of is like being thrown in a river yeah and i'm sure like that's also fresh in his mind as well in everyone's mind like look there's a lot of shitty things that happened to a lot of people throughout history and sometimes things were slightly better for you than they would have otherwise been doesn't mean they were good yeah so before i started this series i kind of assumed that most people who were eunuchs could be considered cisgender men who had had their testicles removed in a medical procedure and it wasn't necessarily how the greeks and romans saw people who were eunuchs The ancients would not have defined a eunuch only as someone who had had their testicles disabled or removed in a medical procedure. The ancient Romans had this word spado or spadones, obviously don't speak Italian or Latin. They used this word to mean any type of asexual or non-reproducing man, which included but was not limited to eunuchs. Spadones could also include celibate or asexual men or those with non-working genitals due to injury or due to a health condition. Spadones and spaders are words that I very much remember from conversations I wasn't supposed to hear as a kid. <laughs> really? What is this? I don't know. Yeah. Well, think think about what it's saying. Like, if you're angry at someone... Wow. I did not know that this was an insult in Italian still. I had no idea. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't go around shouting it. (laughs) Well, now you know what it means. (laughs) It's real dark, real dark. (laughs) So most modern historians we've seen refer to Favorinus as an intersex person. And some ancient writers do as well, but others refer to him as a eunuch. And it doesn't seem like he was broadly seen as someone who wasn't intersex necessarily so much as someone who was born a eunuch. During his time, eunuchs were becoming prominent in the courts and households of the wealthy and the powerful. So there was a place and precedence for favoriness in Hadrian's court. I don't know. Maybe maybe my definition of a eunuch as someone who had had a medical procedure, like maybe that's wrong. But that's how the ancients would have seen it is like you could be born a eunuch. So anyway, Hadrian, let's talk about Hadrian and favoriness now, because Hadrian was Oh, a- let's please. <laughs> giant volatile volcano of intensity and favoriness is also quite intense with eyes that could just stop you in the middle of the street so these two sparks flew he had those come fuck me eyes oh he did so hadrian was favoriness's friend and patron but it might be more accurate to say that they were frenemies or possibly extremely volatile fuck buddies because their relationship was a little bit volcanic here it was fire these two had revealed to each other their cabinets of curiosities So the Emperor Hadrian was not an easy person to be friends with, let's be clear. According to the Historia Augusta, which grain of salt, Hadrian loved learning of all kinds, but he was so rude to his teachers. And I'm going to quote, quote, he used to subject the teachers of these arts as though more learned than they to ridicule, scorn and humiliation. With these very professors and philosophers, he often debated by means of pamphlets or poems issued by both sides in turn. Hadrian was like fucking insufferable as a student. So this one time, Hadrian got into it with Favorinus, picking on him by latching onto a word the philosopher used and picking a fight about it. And the nature of this fight is unclear, but he's probably like, well, that word doesn't mean what you said it means. And Favorinus is like, why are, you, why are you latching onto this? He's like, well, I don't have anything else to argue with you about. And I have a giant argument boner right now. And I have to jerk it off. So, so it's your fault. <laughs> it's your fault, Favorinus, for having those eyes. So... Favorinus just sort of let Hadrian win. He was like, yeah, sure, Hadrian, you're totally right. I was wrong. You are a genius. You are a genius. I bow down. And to be clear, Hadrian was not right. He was being an ass. Everyone knew it. Everyone could see his ass. So later, Favorinus's friends kind of teased him and ragged him a little bit for letting Hadrian win that stupid argument. And Favorinus just laughed and said it was kind of dumb to win a fight of that nature with a guy who controlled 30 legions. Yeah, I mean, Favorinus is like, okay, so I win now and get a knife in the the bed at night and not a good one. (laughs) Yeah, Favorinus was smart. He had good survival instincts, which you would need. He did. And if you listen to our Ancient World Stark series that we keep plugging, but if you listen to it, you'll see how precarious it was to be in these courts and how quickly you could be in and out of favor and how dark these emperors could be. 
So Favorinus and Hadrian continued to butt heads until finally, in the 130s, Hadrian exiled him to the island of Chios, where mastic tears come from. And mastic tears is a form of like a liqueur that Jenny is a little obsessed with. I'm going to do a Patreon on it at some point. Back to our story. But in 138 AD, when Antoninus Pius came to the throne, Favorinus was allowed to return to Rome where he continued his activities of debating with other philosophers, teaching the wealthy sons of wealthy families, and, you know, getting it. Because he absolutely did. (laughs) He was also very prolific and wrote a lot of things, most of which survive only in fragments and quotations from other people's work. It's not exactly clear when he died, but it is clear that he was extremely influential, ran with a very influential set, and lived to a ripe old age. Historians think he probably lived until the 160s AD and died in his 80s, which is just like kind of nice and refreshing to like have a story where ends on a high note for once. (laughs) For once, I mean. So that's the story of intersex people in ancient Greece and Rome. And it is very, very dark. There was at least one person who lived into his 80s. And he lived that long for many reasons, one of which was he was smart enough to know when to let Hadrian win his arguments. Look, there is one intersex person who managed to make it to his 80s and only get exiled once, so that's something. We'll be back in a week, and in the meantime, catch up with us on Twitter at Ancient Hist Fan or Insta and Facebook at Ancient History Fangirl. And consider joining our Patreon, where we drop extra episodes and you get to listen to our episodes early, and it's just a good time. You can find us at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. And you know what? We have some patrons to thank this week. Yeah, apologies to anyone whose name we mispronounce. Thank you very much to Alexis M. Furling, just Furling. Mickey Wakeman. Rachel Meckies. William Bird. Emily Nelson. Sally Moltoni. And Stacy Nist. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next week. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.